Well, good morning once again. I was praying this past week and just felt that uh, this next year should be a year where we allow the Spirit of God to be poured out in greater abundance. I think in too many churches around the world, there has been too much fleshly or carnal religion. And really, the reality is we need to be a Holy Spirit-inspired church. Two weeks ago, I shared on, uh, if you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. And I shared a little bit about taking that step of faith. And this morning, I want to say to you, we need to take that step of faith and let God. And let God. Let God have His way. Let God be poured out on His people. And as His Spirit falls on us, that we would experience His empowering to do His work. So my prayer really has been to have more experiences as God outpours His Spirit on us. That we commit ourselves to in, in much greater anticipation to what He's going to do in our midst that we would experience evidences and manifestations of His Spirit in our services, in our communities, uh, in our suppers together, in our gathering that will take place in a few weeks' time, that we will see more salvations, more healings, more deliverances, more prophetic words coming out. So, let the Spirit of God fall. So this morning I want to share on the Zechariah 4 and verse 6 passage. And my title of my sermon is Doing Church God's Way. And the Zechariah passage is divided into two different groups. It's a little on the negative side and it's a lot on the positive side. So this is what Zechariah 4 verse 6 says. This is the word of the Lord, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. So this was written around about 520 BC. Zechariah is one of the most common names in the Old Testament. I think there are 29 different Zechariahs in the Bible, uh, and it means the Lord remembers. And there, there's no other prophet, minor, major prophet, in the Old Testament, that is as committed as to see the Messianic hope, the return of Jesus. So the context of this book was uh, obviously 520 plus minus years uh, before Christ. Uh, the Persians, Babylonians, had come, captured uh, a whole bunch of guys, had decimated Jerusalem, raised the temple to the ground, and taken a whole lot of people. But after many years of being in exile, uh, the king of Persia said, okay, you know, some of you can return. And if you really want, you can rebuild your temple again. And 50,000 exiles returned to Jerusalem to build the, the temple. They started rebuilding, and it kind of got to foundation level, and it kind of subsided. But it was Haggai and Zechariah in the Old Testament that decided that they were going to push this a little bit further. And the temple was rebuilt in 15, 516, 516, 516 
So Zechariah's vision before this passage in verse 6, he had a, a vision of an olive tree. He was a priest, and they used to get olive oil, and they used to crush, make oil, and bring it into the temple to keep the flame burning all the time. And it was quite an effort, getting the oil, bringing it to the temple. But he had this vision. From the olive tree, there were pipes that would flow straight into the flame. And this was, from that, there was a constant flow. From that, he had this verse, this great verse that is used by so many people, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And really, it speaks of the church, you know, where we try to do ministry in our own strength. Too much effort. Too monotonous. And people are falling by the wayside. You know that 1,700 pastors leave the ministry every single month. That's about 56 a day. That's a lot. Many denominations have got the empty pulpit crisis. We've got folk visiting from Hermanus. And the guy that started the Hermanus, Josh Jen, was approached by a church in upstate New York, a Baptist church. And the Baptist church said, we can't get somebody. So from upstate New York, way up north in America, they looked way down south to Hermanus and they found a guy. And he was prepared to take his family in all of that snow, in all of that cold, which is not a great, uh, it's not a bad option right now in the heat that we've experienced. Right? But they've got a massive crisis around the world to fill pulpits. You see, the, the, the style of the church is the main thing, not the mission, the method of the church. I mean, is it, is it lasting an hour? How's the worship? Not too loud, not too long. How's the worship? You know, you can have great preaching, a great band, awesome facility. Uh, look, it's much better than having a terrible preaching, uh, pathetic music, and a dingy facility. But then they add smoke and strobe lights and loud music and visuals behind the preacher. And there's very little of the authentic stuff that's taking place. But the more I thought about this incredible verse in Zechariah, the more I realized that in the Bible, God is not after power and might. He's after pouring out His Spirit. Fleshly Christianity, carnal Christianity, is it has to come to an end. It has to come to an end. I think the time is rapidly approaching when we step away from our own ingenuity, our own cleverness, our own wisdom, our own smartness, and we begin to see the magnificence and the power of a God working in and through us. Long to see, just, just a little bit, of Ephesians 3.20, that our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. Just a little bit. To see that incredible ability that our God has for us. So, not by might nor by power. Let's look at some things here. 
human might and fleshly power breeds everlasting contention. There was a guy in the Old Testament whose name was Abraham. And God promised him that he would be a father of nations, that he would have as many descendants as there are stars in the skies. That's a lot of descendants. And he gets to a ripe old age. And Sarah comes and says, God promised, but ain't nothing happening. And then she says, let's help God out. Big mistake. Let's help God out. I've got a handmaiden whose name is Hagar. Why don't you go down into unto her, whatever, I mean, basically, sleep with her. And then she can have a, a son, it's your son, and I can raise this child as my own. You know, when you try and help God out because he's promised something, it just comes out as, and this was contention. And Hagar is pregnant, and Sarah calls Hagar. Hagar, nothing. Hagar, silence. Hagar, yes, what do you want? In the past, it was, Hagar, yes, ma'am, I'm coming. Please come. Later. Why don't you want to come now? I'm carrying your husband's child in my body. I'll come when I feel like coming. And contention is born. She was an Egyptian handmaid. Abraham, the spiritual one. When that is born together with the world, you've got this thing, it's the great Afrikaans word, a chamos. And that's exactly what it was. How about Balaam and his donkey? The donkey that speaks back. And Balaam is so furious that he speaks back to the donkey. <laughs> I mean, if, a, if an animal speaks to you and you can understand, I wouldn't be speaking back to the animal. <laughs> but what happened was that the king of Moab saw the Israelites coming and they approached Moab approached Balaam and they said, Balaam, I want you to put a curse on these people. He said, I'll go to God. And God said, no, you don't put a curse on those Israelites. Please, man, here's some money. Here's some riches. No, I can't. Here's some more riches. No, I can't. He says, but I can tell you a way in which you can bring a curse on the people. Send some of your Moabite girls into their midst. And to mix it up with some of those Jewish boys, and then there will be this intermarriage between things of God and the things of the world. And that's how you will bring a curse. <laughs> and it didn't work out well. How about Samson? 
Samson finds himself captured. His hair is shaven. He's in chains. His eyes are gouged out. He reaches up and he touches his hair. And it starts to feel like it's growing. I always thought that that was the start of Samson's strength returning. But it's not really. Samson's strength came from God. For the first time he realized, and the Bible tells us that this is the first time he's in this terrible situation, he's broken, he's in chains, his eyes are gouged out. God led him and watched him go through all of that. And he reaches up and he touches his head and he says, Lord, just give me back my strength one more time. And God stands back, he's listening, he's waiting, he's waiting for three words, and eventually they come out. This is the only time that Samson prayed, the recorded time. I don't know if he prayed before that, but this is the only time that he prayed in the book of Judges. And he prays, let me die. See, God waits for that to happen, to die. To die of your own ministry, to die of your own career, to die of all the things that you have strengthened. Then God can use you. Then God can use you. And so Samson cried, please God, it's no longer my ministry, but it's your glory. And they took him. He asked to be placed right next to the pillars that held up the temple of Dagon. And with one mighty heave and supernatural strength flowing through him, he pushed those pillars down. And the temple of Dagon came crashing down. And the Bible says in Judges 16 and verse 30, in his death he killed more than he had in his life. That's an interesting thing. In his death, in his physical death, in his natural strength. But in his death of those things, he killed more. Lord, let me die so that I might fulfill the purposes of God in my life. When did Jesus perform his greatest work? Formed his greatest work when he was on the cross. We celebrated communion. That was his greatest work. When Jesus hung on the cross, he hung there dying. The flesh was nailed to the cross. He died for our sins so that we could be reconciled to the Father. His hands were nailed to the cross so that he could do no works. His feet were nailed to the cross so that he could not walk his way. His head was filled with crown of thorns so he could not think his own thoughts. His heart was pierced with a spear so that he could not be engaged in his own self-determined sentiments and emotions. He performed his greatest work when he was on the cross. And at that moment, God gathered up all the sins of the world, past, present, and future, and put them on Jesus. And he cried out for the first time, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was his greatest moment. You see, living in the flesh 
is where compromise is possible. Living in the flesh is where temptation is persistent. Too much fleshly Christianity. Let me give you a couple of examples. People leave the church because coffee is no longer free. People leave the church because the brand of coffee changes. Serious? People leave the church because there's not enough parking. Or because the attendant who's doing the parking shows you to park there and not there. People leave the church because they have a fight over which plants must be put in the church. You know, in the New Testament church, if God was taken out by His Holy Spirit out of the New Testament church, 95% of what they were doing would cease immediately. In the 21st century church, I want to tell you that if God was taken out of our midst, 95% would continue and we wouldn't even know the difference. People come to church and they say, what can this church offer me? Is that the right question? Is that the right question? You see, we, we've fused Christianity with consumerism. What's in it for me? But you know, Christian maturity is really about what have I got to give? What have I got to offer? How much can I love in this situation? See, no church can meet all your needs. But if our mindset is, I've come to offer something in the life and the work of this congregation, I die to myself, I aim at the, at the rest of the folk out there, I will give, I will love no matter what. The call to discipleship, Jesus said, is if you want to follow after me, Three things. Deny yourself. Say no to yourself. Die to your own instincts and desires. Take up your cross. Once again, cross is that instrument of execution. And follow me according to the word. And the word is tough. The word is tough. You see, the interesting thing is, Jesus said, the world hated me. Because the world hated me, they'll hate you too. You commit your life to the Lord, trouble's on its way. You're now on the wrong side of the world. And what you're going to meet is trouble. Not by might, nor by power. But praise God, it says, by my spirit, God has given us a source, which is an infinite resource that we can draw on. We can have a constant flow of strength and refreshment. His work is never, ever done. But we have that constant supply of His might 
and his power. I think the folk that are joining churches now are coming out of such a secular environment that they're longing for a touch from God. They're looking forward to having a relationship with with the Lord. They're not looking for ritual. They're not looking for religion. They they have an ever-increasing awareness that they want a relationship with God. And they are desirous to grow in Him. They mean business with God. I mean, there is a statistic out there that there are about 4,000 new churches that are being birthed every single month. That's, That's a lot of churches. You see, when the Spirit is poured out, when revival comes, it exceeds normal effectiveness of the church. We can't really contain. We, we, we don't know which way to turn. And what happens when, when the Spirit is poured out, we begin to glorify Jesus. Jesus spoke just before his death, and the Spirit will come and will focus the attention on the Son. It's like a spotlight, a spotlight that shines on a, a church. There was a church in, in Monte Vista that we used to go past quite often. And it was, was, there was a massive, massive garden and the lights were hidden and it shone on the church. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. It shines the light. He is the most self-effacing member of the Trinity and he wants to concentrate, he wants us to focus on the Son, to testify about Jesus Christ, to bring, bring glory to the Lord. The Holy Spirit also brings submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Where the Spirit is being poured out in great measure, there is a much greater expectation to see the truth of Christ being proclaimed, but also when the Holy Spirit is being poured out, we see a much greater demand to, to put into act, uh, uh, action the the, the the commands and the obedience of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit also invokes repentance before God's holiness. You remember that in Isaiah chapter 6, that vision of Isaiah, where he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, King has to die before you see a vision, before you have an experience, once again. Not by might nor by power. But he had this vision and he saw God high and lifted up and he said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You see, revivals are widespread and when they come, when when the Spirit of God comes, there is a sense of just the conviction of sin. I love the story of John Wesley and George Whitfield were preaching. And they were really concerned. But as they were preaching, people in the congregation just started to cry out. That disturbed their preaching. Some of them collapsed. Some of them started groaning. They're lying on the floor going, oh, oh, oh. I mean, if some of you did that, it would distract me. And they, they, they wrote a letter to their patron, who was Lady Huntington. And she said this, she said this, I mean, I find this fascinating. She said, don't remove these people from the congregation, from the midst. You are making a mistake. Don't be wiser than God. Let them fall down and cry out. It will be 
a great deal more good than your preaching. Thank you. I read that and I, I remember years ago listening to a New Zealand pastor. He came out and he was sharing about the work of the Spirit. And he was preaching in a congregation. And as he was preaching, he had a prophetic word for a woman that was sitting in a chair quite close to the front. And he stopped his preaching. He had this prophetic word for this woman. And he finished the prophetic word and he went on to preaching. And he was one sentence into his, his, his preach. And she went, oh, oh, and she slid off the chair. Boom, and she lay on the floor. I mean, all the other guys moved away. And she lay on the floor for the rest of the sermon. I mean, wouldn't that be incredible? I mean, the only thing that I've got from you when I preach is, <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> but I long to see the power of God come in such a way that you start to groan and cry out because of conviction of sin to such an extent where you slide off your seat and you groan on the ground. Can you imagine? Here in Somerset West, uh, that Josh Jane Church, hey, uh, must be careful, uh, seats are slippery. <laughs> conviction of sin. Jonathan Edwards, the first great awakening in America. He, he, he was a, a congregational minister. Not great theology, one of the great theological minds, but his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, was not great theology. So he got up and he started reading. He read. He read. I mean, if I read my sermon, I, re I read some of the stuff. He read the sermon. And as he's preaching, people cried out. They thought that they were going to get sucked into hell. They held onto the pew in front of them, white-knuckled, because God was so powerfully on that church. That's what happens when the Spirit of God... Let's start doing church God's way and see the Spirit move in the most incredible way. Whitfield said after that experience, he said, from this time... We shall rely on God to carry on His own work in a way that pleaseth Him. When the Holy Spirit falls, there is an abundance of worship. What happened on the day of Pentecost? When the Holy Spirit was poured out, there was a glorious eruption of praise and worship. There was an overwhelming sense of awe and the revelation of the glory of God. There's a hunger for God's Word. People are passionate for God's Word. Because God's Word challenges. God's Word instructs. God's Word directs. God's Word is like a hammer and convicts. And we need to blend the two together. Spirit and Word together. When the Spirit comes, there is greater love. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says that you may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God. Wouldn't that be awesome? When the Spirit comes, there is an incredible thirst. I wrote down in a book, 
Remember, we had that terrible drought in 17 and 18, 2018. And we were battling with all our bath water and shower water to water our plants. It wasn't good for our garden to just get little sprinklings of water. It needs to be drenched right deep down. It wasn't good. And there are times that we just get a little sprinkling of the Spirit of God. We need to be drenched with the Spirit of God. When the Spirit comes, there is an increased passion. We are captivated with the wonder and love of God. It propels us to go out and to do missions. It causes us to participate in intercessory prayer. Our generous giving starts to increase. We begin to exercise the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I read a prophetic word, and I want to share this with you as I finish off. You remember about 40 years ago, and they're still around, is tied dye t-shirts. You remember that? I had one or two of those. My wife, who was in fashion, saw them. And if, if, if she dislikes something, she says, that must die. Must get it, get it out of the house. I don't want to see you wearing that. <laughs> but tie dyed T-shirts are tied in such a way, and it's dipped. You know, John the Baptist said of Jesus, when Jesus comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And the word baptizo is you, you, you take wool and you put it into a vat and you turn it around and around and around, and so it's completely and absolutely dyed, and then you take it out. And it's, it should be completely dyed. But tie-dyed is you, you put it in, you tie it in such a way that it dies only in those areas. But sometimes we are so tied, we need to be loosed by the Spirit of God. So sometimes our baptism, is we, we, we're only in areas where we've opened up and become vulnerable to the Lord. We become so knotted up that whole sections of our lives are closed. We get fired up, we get drenched, but there are areas of our lives that are knotted. Do you have areas like that where you haven't submitted to the Spirit of God? Areas where you just need to say, Lord, flow into this area. Maybe that area has not come under the obedience and under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you this morning, maybe we need to let God's Spirit have His way and untangle us, untie those knots, letting us loose, saturating our very being so that we become more and more like Jesus. May He unravel and untie those things in our lives that we need to do.